can grab a seat. You can't have three girlfriends? No. Why? I, I, I could have two. It's like, I don't want three. Does it stress you out having that many girlfriends? Yeah. It's like I, I have to give one up. Oh, no. How are you going to decide who to give up? I don't know. It's like they're all pretty. I have to give one up. Oh, it's rough being five, isn't it? I wish I was four again. <laughs> oh, relationships are hard. Relationships are hard. Why? Why? Because sometimes having three girlfriends, even when they're all pretty, is still too many. Sometimes you just got to cut down to two. Sometimes we take someone really special to midnight yell. And when those lights go out and we're moving in, we get the side hug, right? Or if you're one of my friends, you get this weird kind of forehead kiss thing. Oh, no. Relationships are hard. Sometimes it's because, man, we go out with someone and we, we ask them on a date. We take them somewhere on a date and we get through the entire evening and it turns out that they had no idea that it was a date, right? Sometimes it's hard because we have to break up with someone uh, without ever actually dating them, right? Because we were the last person that didn't know it was a date, right? And so we wind up in that camp. Relationships are hard because sometimes we walk away from a relationship with crippling guilt and regret because of what happened or what didn't happen with that person. Sometimes relationships are hard because we just, we're scarred. We're so scarred by a previous relationship that we don't even want to think about starting a new one. Sometimes we're so scared of not having a relationship that we make compromises that we never thought we'd make. Sometimes we get caught up in relationships so much that we are isolated from healthy community. Sometimes we get pulled down into relationships that are poisonous and toxic. Sometimes we get just dragged into a relationship that's abusive, verbally or emotionally or physically. Eventually, over 90% of us are going to commit ourselves to a lifelong relationship known as marriage. At some point, I can say over 90%, more than 9 out of 10 of us in this room right now are going to commit ourselves to marriage despite the fact that we've seen marriages crash and burn because of discontentment or disillusionment or, or maybe sexual dissatisfaction. Relationships are hard. Why? Because every time we put our hopes and dreams in a person, we are guaranteed to be disappointed. Because every person is sinful. Every person is broken. Therefore, every relationship is sinful and broken. Because every time we make a relationship our ultimate desire, we are completely missing its original design. Every time you make a relationship your ultimate desire, you are missing its original design. This semester... We are going through the Song of Songs. We're studying it because we want to better understand God's redemptive design for humanity. We're studying it because we want to understand what we're supposed to do with relationships. 
Because we as Christians, we don't want to just pursue great relationships. That's not our goal. We want to pursue godly relationships that sing his beautiful song over the broken noise of our world. That's what we want. That's what I want for you. So this morning, as we begin this series that I've been so pumped about, that I'm so excited about, the series that I've been looking forward to for weeks, months, really, honestly. We started the prep on this in the beginning of the summer. I've been looking forward to this for months, and we're here. But like any new relationship, we're going to take it slow, okay? Any healthy relationship, we're going to take it a little slow. We're not going to start off with that eight-hour date, okay? I know some of you, that's where you do My friends, and some of them got married, so it could work, but... We're going to start a little slow. We're going to start with just an introduction. Right? We're going to introduce ourselves to the topic. We're going to introduce ourselves to the book. We're going to ask just the simple questions of who, what, and why. We're going to ask ourselves, who wrote the Song of Songs? What did they write it? What is it? And then why? Why did they write the Song of Songs? Why are we studying it? Why does this book matter to us today? To help us with that introduction Whitney read just a few moments ago the literal introduction of the book, the first verse of the Song of Songs, which says, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Boom, verse one. Good scripture memory uh, to go for. It might not apply a lot, but by golly, you will know Bible. And that answers our first question, right? Like our first question was, who wrote the Song of Songs? Well, it appears that when we look at it, it seems to be Solomon's, right? In English, it seems pretty clear cut. It seems pretty clear that Solomon, this is his book. That's why a lot of us even grew up, maybe even walked into this morning thinking, Song of, what? Like, Song of Solomon, like, come on, preacher man. Like, Song of Solomon is the word of, is the name of that book. You're going to have Bibles. That is, that's what it says. At the very first page, it says Song of Solomon. And so many of us take that, we're like, okay, well, therefore, yeah, it's, it must be like, what he wrote, it must be his book. But the reality is that when we read it in the original Hebrew, it's not quite as clear as you might think. The reality is that once we read it in the Hebrew, what we see is instead, basically the words, I'm going to translate some of them to English because I can't speak Hebrew nearly well enough. But we see the Song of Songs, okay, so that's, that's pretty clear cut. Song of Songs, and then we have a word, and then we have Solomon's. And when we read it, what we find is that there's this word right in there that's asher, asher. I listened to its pronunciation like 12 times last night, and my wife turned to me and thought I was, had gone crazy uh, because I was just sitting there listening to a woman say, Ashed, over and over and over again. <laughs> but by God, that's how you pronounce it, according to some random user from Israel, right? But she says, it's Ashed, Ashed. And so this word, we see Song of Songs, Ashed, Solomon. And what that indicates is that there is some sort of connection between the Song of Songs and Solomon. It's a relative pronoun. That's what Ashed is. And if you're not an education major, let me explain, a relative pronoun. Uh, Examples in English are things like who, which, that, right? Kind of connecting words. And so when we see the Song of Songs, Asher, Solomon, what we're seeing is that it could be saying Song of Songs, which is Solomon. So it could be saying the Song of Songs, uh, which are for Solomon. It could be Song of Songs uh, by Solomon, according to Solomon, in light of Solomon. The reality is that there's a lot of different little connections we can make. And scholars have been debating what is the correct translation for years. Years and years and years and years. Because they're not quite sure. Because normally in this kind of circumstance, in this kind of situation, we use immediate context to figure it out. But for this moment, for this verse, right, this is all we got. 
Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. There is no immediate context. And so we're left a little bit scratching our heads. The same way that if maybe I brought up a piece of artwork, set it right here on the stage, and said, this is the painting. Okay, this is a painting. Or let's just say this, this podium. The podium is by Jacob. If I told you that, the podium is by Jacob. That can mean a lot of different things. That could mean that the podium is near me, right? It's, it's physically close to me. That could mean that the podium was created by me, right? That could mean that the podium is in itself an, an art piece that's like, bye, Jacob, right? Like, see, it'd be misspelled, but, you know, artists do that, I think. Uh, it's cool to misspell. Uh, but they, there's a lot of different meanings right there, right? And so you'd have to look at the broader context of what the conversation was. You'd have to be in the room. You'd have to hear kind of more about the situation. And so we look at the broader context, right? There's no specific immediate context. We look at the broader context of the book. And we try to understand, okay, which, what is this talking about? Is it according to Solomon, by Solomon? What, where is it? And the problem is that when we look at the broader context of the book, it's still debatable, When we open up the book, we find it full of poetic language, of symbolism that's beautiful. We find it with different protagonists, with different perspectives, male and female perspectives. In fact, the woman talks the most. When we look in the book, what we see is there are references to Solomon. There's a few mentions of Solomon by name, but those references honestly could either include him or they could exclude him from authorship. When we look through the book, what we find is that the broader context doesn't make it clear cut. We're left wondering, is this book entirely written by Solomon? Like the book of Ecclesiastes in our Bible, entirely written by Solomon? Or could it be partially written by Solomon and maybe compiled by him where he grabs a lot of other literature, like Proverbs? That's what Proverbs is. He, he wrote a lot of it and he also gathered some sayings, some known wise sayings from the culture. Or could it just be written for Solomon? Could someone written it and been like presented it to him as a gift? And we don't we don't know for sure. We don't know a hundred percent for sure. But I'll tell you the one thing that we do all agree on when it comes to the author of Song of Songs. When it comes to that, what we agree on is one well two main things. One, Asher, oh, is the worst. Right, that's the one thing we all agree on. The second thing we all agree on is someone wrote Song of Songs. Someone wrote it. I will, I will say that all day, every day. Someone wrote the Song of Songs, and that person was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to write every single word, including Asher. Even Asher. But it was written, it was inspired, written ultimately by the Holy Spirit. That's what I will absolutely defend to my death. That this book is Scripture. That doesn't matter what the human author, whether it was one human author, whether it was a bunch of human authors, there was one God who wrote it with one goal in mind. So when we look at the Song of Songs, if you had to pick a side, if I had to pick a side, I would probably land on, well, I I think it's probably uh, just based on, again, a summer of research, I think that it's probably multiple authors uh, one of which would be Solomon and compiled by him. That's, that's what I would probably stand. I'll stand on that hill. I will not die on that hill, right? If you're like, absolutely, I'll be, okay, okay. I'll just step back. <laughs> okay, that's fine. I'll discuss it with you. I won't die for it, right? But what we see is that the Song of Songs is written by someone. Ultimately, it's written by God. That's who is behind the Song of Songs. But what is it? 
What is the Song of Songs? What is it about? What does that title even mean? Well, we see that it is the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. The Song of Songs. And again, that seems a little bit clear-cut, right? Like, I think we just answered our second question. Well, it appears that the Song of Songs is one big song made out of lots of other little songs. That's what the title seems to imply. It is one big song made of other little songs. The same with the Avengers are made of a lot of individual superheroes, right? The Power Rangers Megazord took a bunch of little zords to form it. The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants had multiple girls that all wore the same size. What? You know, like that's... It's the idea of there's a, there's a large group, there are a bunch of individuals that form together to create the whole. And that is true. That is definitely meant here. But there's also another meaning. There's a double meaning. There's a beautiful play on words happening in this opening. Because in Hebrew, when they repeated a word, repetition of a term in Hebrew implied a superlative, meaning the best. It implies that this is the song of songs. This is the ultimate. We see it in places like Exodus, where God is talking about how the priests are going to interact with him. He says that they're going to go to this a meeting to minister in the holy place. This is also translated as the holy of holies. Literally in Hebrew, it's saying holy, holy, holy of holies. This is the most holy place. We see it in places like Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, where he's complaining about the vanity of vanities. The vanity of vanities, meaning these, this world is just full of meaningless things. Vanity of vanities. It's a superlative. The same way if I turned to my wife, Susan, and told her, you are the wife of wives. Right? At first she'd be confused, but then she'd be probably cool with it. She'd be like, okay, I can get behind that compliment. Don't use it again, but I'll get behind it <laughs> this one time. You are the wife of wives. Right? Try that. Try that with your mom. You are the mom of moms. <laughs> See how many cookies she bakes for you. That'd be awesome, right? So we have this idea, though, of it is an extreme. It is the superlative. It's not only a collection, it's also the ultimate. This is the song. And that makes a lot of sense that it's the song, but that it's also a collection. Because when we look through the book, what we find is a lot of diversity. When we look through the book Song of Songs, we find that there is a lot of diversity, but yet in the midst of that diversity, there's also incredible unity. When we go through it, what we find is there's diversity in that there are mixed themes. As we walk through this week by week, we're going to find parts where they're like, hey, hey, go to the woods. Go to the woods. And it's this beautiful place. Like, oh, yes, I will go to the woods. And then all of a sudden you get like a chapter later and it's like, don't go to the woods. Don't go to the woods. I'm like, oh my gosh, oh, you're right. No, I'm, why am I in the woods? Like they, there's this weird mixture of things. We find also a mixture of characters. We're interacting with shepherds. We're interacting with guards. We're interacting with girls and, and women and brothers. And, and there's kings. And there's all these different characters that are interspersed throughout this book. There's different analogies. There's different symbolism. There's different illustrations of things that are happening. Different pictures being painted. There's a lot of diversity within the book. But yet through that diversity, what we find is a beautiful unity. What we find is that there are also recurring themes. Themes and, and symbols that are brought up. Pictures that are brought up. The man will one time turn to the woman and say, you're like a flower. And she says, no, you're like a flower. He's like, no, you the flower. Right? And they have this kind of exchange. And you see it carried throughout the book. Like, ooh, you're a f- you are a flower. Or an apple tree. Hey, yo. Right? Well, you understand. 
We'll get there. Uh, but we see, right, these, 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 these mixed, or this uh, recurrent themes, right? We're going to see gazelles and, and animals and life. You're never going to look at gazelles the same way ever again after we read this book because it's one of those recurring themes. We have recurring characters. We have these women, these girls of Jerusalem, these daughters of Jerusalem, these daughters of Israel who pop up over and over and over again, almost like the chorus of a play. They're kind of this ever-present background character who's used as a foil where one of the, the speakers, the, primarily the woman, will speak to them and tell them things and they'll respond. We have this recurring theme, these recurring characters. We also have a recurring phrase. Week after week after week, we're going to see this one phrase pop up like the chorus of a song where they're going to tell us that we shouldn't awaken love until it's time. We shouldn't awaken love until it's time. Over and over and over again. We see diversity, but we also see incredible unity. What we see is not a, a perfect story arc, right? We don't see this perfect, like, three-act play where there's, you know, the rise of the hero and then conflict and then resolution, right? That's not the way it works. Instead, what we see is there's some moving around, some back and forth, some, some mixture, again, diversity of themes of what things mean. And in the midst of that, though, there is an overall progression. In the midst of that all, we see one very clear direction. We see attraction at the very beginning. We see that attraction creating some sort of action. We see that action leading to some sort of commitment. We see that commitment leading to another sort of action. Then we see that action leading to eventually a conflict and then resolution. It's not a perfect story which is one of the reasons I don't fall on the, this is a narrative written by one person about one couple. It's not perfect, but there is a theme. There's a motif. There's a thread running through this book, this beautiful, beautiful book filled with poetry because it's a song. It's a song. We need to remember that. It's a song. So when we get into it, as we're seeing who wrote it, as we're seeing who, what they wrote about it, we have to ask ourselves, why, right? What's the purpose? Why does this exist? Why is it in our Bible? Because maybe a lot of us have never heard it taught before in a pulpit, right? Maybe a lot of us haven't heard it taught in our fourth grade Sunday school classroom. Old Mrs. Higgins just didn't want to hand, and that's fine, right? But, but then we ask ourselves, well, why? Like, why? Why is it there? Why do they write this book? Why are we studying it now? Why now? And I'll tell you, it's for two big reasons. One of the big reasons why this book was created, I would say the main reason this book was created was because it presents a relationship. This book is written about a relationship. God designed you in your entirety. God designed you holistically. That means every single aspect of your being was put there by the Lord. Certain parts have been destroyed and broken by sin, but God designed you holistically, and that includes your relationships. God gave you a desire for meaningful relationships with other people. He gave you a desire for a meaning relationship with himself. That's why if you're not a believer— you're never going to find true joy in this life. You're never going to find true satisfaction because there's a hole inside of you that cannot be filled by anything other than a relationship with the God of the universe. Which makes sense. What could possibly step in and fill those shoes? You're designed to have a relationship with our God. You're designed to have a relationship with his people. But the church struggled with this idea. The church has struggled for years 
with Song of Songs because they just they couldn't quite bring themselves to acknowledge the relationship. At the very beginning, everyone was cool with it. But eventually, uh, as we were starting to kind of study it and understand the book, uh, there were a number of Jewish rabbis, right? Because they had the book before Christians ever even existed. And so the Jewish rabbis, as they were studying the book, they're like, well, I don't know. And they began to get influenced by outside cultures that were more, uh, they, they saw a difference between body and soul. A lot of them saw, this was especially common in Greek thought, they said the body is uh, icky, right? Body, ugh. But the soul, nice. Right? Like they love the soul. Like, so your body, uh, I guess it can exist, but only because it holds your soul, right? That's the only cool thing about the body is that it's a cup for the soul. And so what they decided is that, okay, well, maybe this book, right? It seems to be a lot about uh, bodies and it seems to be a lot about, you know, people and relationships. And, but that, that's just going to be a metaphor. They decided, no, this is just one giant allegory for God's relationship with Israel. That's what the Jewish rabbis said. And when they said that, that eventually trickled through the years and influenced Christian scholars, Christian thought. Until eventually even early church fathers began to think like, well, maybe yeah, maybe that's right. They're getting influenced by the, the Jewish rabbis. They're getting influenced by the Greek culture around them. And they're thinking, yeah, like, maybe this is just a giant allegory for God's relationship with his people, right? With his church, with his, the people of God. Maybe this is just one giant allegory, right? And we can sort of see how that would work. They were influenced by Greek. And when that happened, when that Greek influence came in, we had Christians like Hi- Hippolytus, Hippolytus. Around 200 AD, Hippolytus, he decided, you know what, yeah, 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 there, there's definitely this mixture. Uh, it's definitely more about spiritual, though. So what he did, he took it to the extreme, where in chapter 4, uh, we're going to see uh, some romance taking place. And we're going to see the man, the woman inviting the man to lay his head between uh, her bosom, between her breasts. And Hippolytus decides, in his infinite wisdom, that what, she mu- what must be happening right there, right? Because it's an allegory. And so he decides, no, no, her breasts are actually the Old and New Testament. And then laying your head in the middle, is that's Christ. Christ bridges the gap between the Old and New Testament. <laughs> please, please just don't, just don't. When you're married or talking to people, don't, just don't. Old and New Testament, that's the worst nickname. Uh, but we, we heard, right, but we see that. We see that, we're like, oh man, like that doesn't, that, you know, he's jumping through these hoops. It seems like he's making these really strenuous connections. They're really thin threads, right? We've got to admit that, it's thin. It's very thin at best. And we see that, though, where he's influenced by that Greek thought. Other scholars at the exact same time, uh, a few years after him, a guy named Origen. Origen, a huge church father, a guy that we love and respect, and he wrote so many amazing things. Origen himself wasn't just influenced by Greek thought. He was also influenced just by his own personal kind of background and kind of baggage that he had as a person. Part of it was when he came to faith, he became just disgusted with sin to the extent that he hated the body. He was influenced a little bit by Greek culture. And he decided, you know what? I I hate my body. I hate the the desires that I have for the physical needs. And so because of that, he absolutely hated his own sexuality and origin castrated himself. Castrated himself. And so then he wrote books and books and books on Song of Songs. And what did he do? He castrated it. He completely desexed it. And he said, no, 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 what this is, it's, it's just this allegory, right? It's just this big symbol. 
And it's another thing that we look at and we're like, man, I, I don't know. I don't know. And that's why today, honestly, modern scholars, we have pretty much discounted the allegory approach. We've pretty much just done away with that. We've said, no, no that's, that is misguided, right? There were always large groups of the church that, helped, that were against that, right? Don't, don't think that this is like a new thing. People were always like, no, I think we should be reading this naturally. I think this is about a relationship. God created relationships. Why would he not write a book about relationships? But modern scholars pretty much across the board have said, the allegory, it's, it's a stretch, right? It's a stretch for a couple big reasons. They say, well, there's really no content that backs that up. When we look in the book, there's never any clear indication that it's meant to be interpreted allegorically. There's no indication of that. And our Bible is very, very clear. There's not a lot of rhymes and riddles in our Bible. When we look in Scripture, what we see is if there's an allegory, it's often very clear. They're like, this is an allegory. They'll say things like, the kingdom of God is like this. And they present an allegory. The word of God is like this, right? There's these key phrases, but that never happens in Song of Songs. There's no indication that it's meant to be an allegory. The context also doesn't make sense. When you look in the original Hebrew Scripture, what we find is that the Song of Songs was placed very strategically What we find is that it falls in this order of books where we have Proverbs, and then we have Ruth, and then we have Song of Songs. And what happens in that progression is we see at the end of Proverbs a presentation of a virtuous woman. One of the authors that I've been studying this summer says that Proverbs, it will be remembered, concludes with a poem concerning the virtuous woman. Ruth and the song then both present virtuous and assertive women for our contemplation. It's very strategically placed. The context of Song of Songs, it doesn't make sense for it to be a giant allegory. Instead, it seems to be presenting real people, a real relationship. But it's twofold, right? There's two whys. It's presenting a real relationship. And and while it's not an extended allegory of God and his people, the reality is that Christ himself said that all scripture points to him. He told the rabbis of his day, all scripture is about me. All scripture is about me. If you're reading scripture and you don't see me in it, you're missing it because it's there. And that includes the Song of Songs. So even though the Song of Songs isn't one giant allegory, it still points to Christ in its own way because it's a song. You see, the beauty of a song is the fact that it's never an end unto itself. A song always communicates a bigger idea. A song always points to something else. Within a song, there's always a melody, but there's always a message. There's always a melody and a message in any given song, especially this one. Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, 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 bass. <laughs> There's a melody that is very catchy that is going to be stuck in your head for the rest of the morning. I apologize for that right now. But there's also a message, right? First and foremost, that guy can move. Like, if we watch the rest of the video, which we can't because, again, I don't want to stick it in your brain forever, uh, that guy's got, he's got some jives that are impressive, right? But we also see this other message, right? We see not only this catchy tune, we don't only see this melody that's kind of, yeah, it kind of gets in our heads, but it also presents a message of, hey, this is what I like in my sound balance, in my EQ, right? Like, I really want the bass to be present, like, really up high. No, of course not. That's not what it means. If you were thinking that, you're like, no, you need to wake up. Uh, there is, 
there's an idea, right, about body image. And she's saying, and we're going to actually, this is a great illustration for uh, what we're getting to next week, but so I'm not going to go too much into it. But she's talking about uh, body image. She's talking about some ideas about the conceptions, perceptions, expectations we have for our bodies. And she says, man, I, I really love that base. Interpret as you will. Uh, but she <laughs> is presenting not only a melody, there's also a message. And the Song of Songs is a song. It is a song. And so we shouldn't be surprised to find that it has a melody and a message. We shouldn't be surprised that God has created relationships to act the same way. That every relationship has a melody and it also has a message. That's why when we make a relationship our ultimate desire, we are missing its original design. Because relationships are not meant to be an end unto themselves. They are a means to the end of demonstrating, reflecting who God is and what God's done. That's the point of a relationship, including the relationship presented in Song of Songs. Every godly relationship is created, is designed. God gave you a desire for that relationship so that it would not be an end unto itself, but it's the means to an end. That's why Paul wrote Ephesians 5 that we read last week, where he tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that Christ might sanctify the church, having cleansed the church by the washing of water with the word, so that Christ might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish, Paul is making this connection between Christ and the church with men and women in the ultimate relationship, marriage. And this was not like everyone, not everyone's just like, oh yeah, okay, duh, duh, yeah, of course. Like we are that now, maybe you've heard this before. We read it last week and you're thinking, yeah, okay, I've heard that before. But this was a revolutionary idea. Paul tells him, look, this mystery, it is profound. But I'm telling you, marriage is meant to reflect Christ and the church. It is referring to Christ and the church. Our relationships are God's song of songs. The same way that a man and a woman pursue one another, sacrifice for one another, love one another, commit to one another, even when that other person is the worst, even when that person fails and disappoints and sins repeatedly time after time after time, Paul is saying that is an image. That is just the briefest glimpse. That is the message behind the melody of the gospel. That Christ would look down, that God would look down on a world that is full of sin and death and destruction. And it's all our fault. But yet God being rich in mercy would send his son to die on behalf of those people who have been mistaken, of those people who have made God their enemy, of those people who are children of wrath. God died for them. Jesus Christ died so that we might live. That anyone who calls upon the name of Christ would no longer find any condemnation in themselves. Instead, they would be made righteous. That we are joined with him in his death. We're joined with him in his burial, and we're joined in him with him in his resurrection. Just as he rose from the grave three days after his death, so shall we one day be raised free from this disgusting world, brought to a new creation, a new earth, a new heaven with our God forever. Our relationships are just the briefest glimpse of that. Our relationships are God's song of songs. The relationship is the melody. The gospel is the message that we proclaim.
the message that should be so clear. Every single week, we're going to catch glimpses of that. We're going to catch little glimpses of, of how we reflect God in our relationships in, in attraction next week. We're going to look at how we reflect God in, in pursuit of one another, how we reflect God in intimacy with one another, how we reflect God in our conflict with one another. We're going to see every single week how is our relationship the melody to the message of the gospel? How is our relationship a song, a song of songs for the sake of God? That's why it was written. That's why. And that's why this morning we're going to take communion. Because the ordinance of communion, something that's been around for literally thousands of years in the church, where people use it as a symbolic way to reflect who God is and what he's done. It's a symbol to remember what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. It's a way for us to stop and kind of calm down and think about who God is, what God's done. Because the reality is that if you were in or are in uh, or, or coming out of a bad relationship, whether you were in, are in a good relationship, whether you uh, don't even aren't thinking about relationships right now, whether you are desperately pursuing one, like you're sitting next to that person right now and you're just trying not to look at them because you're like, oh no, <laughs> they're on to me. <laughs> if so, I apologize for bringing that up just now. Um, No matter where you stand on that relationship spectrum, the reality is that we have a God. The beauty is that we have a God who loves to restore what's broken. No matter what mistakes you've made relationally, no matter how many relationships you've had that have broadcast the gospel, not at all. God loves to restore what's broken. That's why we take communion. Because it symbolizes that Christ was broken on our behalf. That's what the bread is. The juice or wine that that symbolizes the blood that he spilled to save us from our sin, to save us from our death. So as we sing a few more songs, as we enter into this time, let me just encourage you, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, all we want for you right now is to talk to God. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your God, as your Savior, please talk with God in this moment. Or come talk to one of our leaders. There's going to be leaders in the back who are going to be praying for you. That you might find a moment just right now to to speak with the Lord. If If you don't really know how to do that or you don't know what that's all about, talk to one of our leaders that's going to be in the back. They're going to be standing there. They're going to be praying on your behalf. But they'd love to know what you specifically want prayer for. If you are a believer, man, let me just encourage you, take this opportunity to worship. That's why we're going to be singing a few songs. Take this opportunity to thank the Lord for his grace. As leaders, we'll be moving around this room. Okay, you'll be, th- you'll be worshiping and it's going to be awesome. But realize there are going to be leaders moving around the room. They're going to be directing you. They're going to release your rows. You're going to be going to different spots. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be fun. So let's begin by praying. Lord, we, we thank you that you've given us the gift of communion. That, God, you've given us the gift of being able to remember what your son, Jesus Christ, has done. God, we thank you that you are so great 
that you've always had a plan. That God, no matter what mistakes we've made, God, no matter what we did that was wrong this last week, God, no matter what mistake we're going to make this next week, that God, you've already forgiven it. That God, there's already redemption, there's already grace to be found in the midst of that mistake. God, that's what we want to recognize in this time. God, that's what we want to see this semester is your plan of redemption for us as humanity. God, your plan of redemption for our relationships. I mean, if you would take a moment right now, just ask the Lord to maybe draw to your mind where you've had relational mistakes. Maybe something that you need to still ask forgiveness for, either from the Lord or maybe from that other person. Ask God to convict you, to bring to mind what, where have you stepped off of that path? Where have you had relationships that did not present the gospel? Or maybe where have you pursued relationships that didn't present the gospel? Where did you desire a relationship that never happened? And in that desire, you did not present the gospel. Ask the Lord to bring that to your mind right now, that you might go before him asking for forgiveness. If you would take a moment now, ask the Lord to just remind you of his grace, of his love. Thank God for the fact that he loves you while you're still a sinner. Thank him for that. Maybe draw to mind a a specific time where you've seen God's love, you've seen God's grace, you've seen God's faithfulness. Just spend these next few moments thanking him for what he's done, for who he is.